The truth is very, very powerful. It's absolute, it's authoritative, but people do not always like the implications of truth and often exchange it for a more favorable alternative. There will always be people who prefer absurdity to truth. Absurdity provides people certain moral liberties that truth does not. Some people actually believe that the Jews invented the Holocaust to advance and promote their interests at the expense of other peoples. They exchange a mountain of personal evidence, personal testimonies, documentation, artifacts, and locations for anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Absurdity aids in justifying their racism. Some people today honestly believe, I did a little research on this, they honestly believe that the earth is a flat disk with the Arctic Circle at the center and Antarctica is a 150-foot wall of ice surrounding it all. They believe NASA employees stand guard at this wall of ice to keep people from falling off the earth. Apparently, for some people, the experience of over 500 space travelers, 12 moonwalkers, an abundance of satellites with good cameras and science are all completely unreasonable and unreliable. Some prefer absurdity to rational evidence. There will always be skeptics of the truth, but the truth whether universally accepted or not, whether it's popular or not, is always true. People reject the gospel for a whole lot of reasons. But the oftentimes hidden reason is people don't like the implications the truth has on their life. They prefer a different reality and so they create one to live in. Paul said, for the word of the cross is folly, it's stupid, it's foolish to those who are perishing. Now, if someone is perishing, they will consider the gospel inane, obtuse, they'll oppose it. But Paul says that for those who believe it and are being saved by it, the gospel is what? The power of God. The truth of Jesus Christ is very, very powerful. There are two simple things that I want you to walk away with this morning. Uh, I have them there in your notes. Here's the first. The gospel, or you could say Jesus, will always have strong opposition, not because it lacks evidence, credibility, or rationality, but because people don't like the implications of the gospel, the implications that the gospel has on their lives. As followers of Jesus, we can be absolutely confident and assured in the gospel. Jesus is the Christ because his life demonstrated it. The opposition to the gospel should never weaken our commitment to the gospel because we should understand why the opposition exists. Sometimes the world's arguments, even to Christians, the world's arguments against the gospel are attractive. But deep beneath the surface is always an agenda to dismiss truth and morality established by God. 
Ulterior motives run rampant inside opposition to the gospel because opposition to the gospel originates out of the predisposition of human nature, out of the human heart, to protest the beautiful truth of God. John wrote this gospel so that people would believe, really believe. So my intent this morning is to to build your confidence in the gospel by exposing the agenda behind unbelief in chapter 9. Here's the second takeaway. There is a personal cost, a high personal cost in believing the gospel and following Jesus, but he's worth it. He's worth it. When we understand the implication that the gospel has on our lives, we need to believe Jesus is worth it. He convinces us that he is worth it by displaying his divine power and nature and mercy and compassion and grace. The implications of the gospel are to be treasured deeply in the heart. Today we'll see stubborn unbelief and abhorrence for the implications of the gospel. And next week we're going to see this beautiful belief in and enjoyment of the implications of the gospel. It's divided. We see different approaches to the gospel. John wants us to see both, and he wants us to see it in a compelling, somewhat emotional way. So let's dig in. Jesus had just supernaturally healed a man born blind. Let that hit you. That's unexpected but tremendous grace. Verse 8 says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Not borrow, but beg. This man took charity from people his entire life. They knew this guy. But when he came back seeing, the people who knew him, probably knew him for years, were like, hey, isn't that the beggar guy? Wait, he can now see all of a sudden? What happened? Well, that would have raised some eyebrows, I would expect. Verse 9, some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. I'm the guy that that you know. It's not another guy. I'm him. Some thought it was the, the man born blind. Some said, nah, it just looks like him. So we see these conflicting opinions. Even though he was saying, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. The truth was mind boggling. So some devised this look-alike theory. It must be a guy that looks like him because he obviously couldn't have been healed, which sounds very believable on the surface, except it wasn't true. That's not actually what happened. The truth always has opposition. Think about this. What might it mean if that man was actually healed? What are the implications of that? The implications of the healing are significant. You need to do something with the truth of that healing. Verse 10. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? Well, that's a good question. How did this all happen? They wanted to hear his story. They wanted to get it right. They, they, they thought that it mattered to ask. Now, I've seen some incredible magic tricks. I don't know if you've, you've heard of Chris Angel. He's done some phenomenal things that I'm like, Wow, what in the world? And it always, I always seem to have the same reaction to magic tricks. I'm thinking deep inside, how'd they do that? Is that how you respond? Like, how'd they do that? That looked extremely real. Now, 
we know, at least I hope you know, that magic is sleight of hand. It's illusion. That's, that's the skill of it. And so we think, always when we're watching magic, there is a reasonable explanation for that. And there always seems to be one. But when someone born blind all of a sudden can see there is no category for that except miracle. But what if people don't believe in miracles? What if people don't have a miracle category? What if they don't like the implications of miracles? Well, what do they do? They look for the best alternative explanation available as justification for repudiating and rejecting the truth. Take Darwinism, for example. There is a clear moral agenda behind Darwinism. Though Darwinism is widely accepted, it's not because macroevolution is more evidential or convincing. Creationism is, frankly, way more scientific and credible. Darwinism does a terrible job at explaining the complex design of even a single cell organism, let alone amino acids and protein molecules. Darwinism does a terrible job at explaining intangible things like love, self-sacrifice, kindness, and morality in general. The reason why creationism is so callously opposed and Darwinism is so widely accepted is because biblical creationism comes with accountability to a holy God. And Darwinism allows each person to create their own morality. So if you don't want to follow a holy God, what are you going to choose? The next best option. If Jesus opened the eyes of that blind man, then Jesus is all that he says he is, and we are accountable to him as God's son. The man answered, verse 11, The man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. All this guy could do was tell the simple truth. He could just relay what happened not a lot of fluff there. This is what happened. He didn't understand it all. There was mystery to it, but he knew he could see and he knew what happened. Well, they asked where Jesus was. The man didn't know. So they took the man to the Pharisees. They apparently wanted to hear from the experts who knew the Bible. They should have consulted Psalm 146 first, which says the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. That would have been tremendously helpful to them. And it would have made sense of the miracle. But they encountered something they couldn't explain. On the Sabbath, no less. And so what do they want to do? They want to run to the authorities. So they go to the Pharisees for their thoughts. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. That was a problem for the Jews. That was a big, big problem. The Sabbath was a tightly controlled event, a tightly controlled religious day. So, Houston, we have a problem. We have a big problem. More on that in a little bit. Verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed and I see. You see, secondary testimony, secondhand information was not good enough for them, so they wanted to ask the man himself. So he told them straight out, no editorializing, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And they didn't believe him. Verse 18 will confirm that. Why didn't they believe him? 
verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. You ever think about Jesus bringing division? Jesus divides things. Jesus divides people. The first group of Pharisees said, This man... This man, see how cutting that is? This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And they're talking about Jesus, not the blind man. Very biting words. If Jesus is not from God, then where is Jesus from? Well, according to these guys, he was a sinner. He was satanic because he didn't keep their Sabbath rule. They made the Sabbath into this oppressive day with all of these man-made rules all right, Because the oral rabbinic tradition passed down to them added all kinds of restrictions to God's word. It went way further than God's word did. The Mishnah is a compilation of the oral rabbinic traditions or laws that were written down. In one section, titled Mishnah Shabbat 7.2, there are 39 prohibitions for the Sabbath day. You couldn't tie or untie things. Forget about sandals or shoes. Or write or erase two or more letters or characters? Or extinguish a fire? I'm not sure what that would look like. Oh no! Let it burn. I don't know. But the most relevant for John 9 is this one. You couldn't need. K-N-E-A-D. You couldn't need. Jesus spit on the ground and with mud and saliva he kneaded the mud. Well, they considered that work. In addition, healing was banned on the Sabbath. Couldn't heal people unless it was life-threatening. Well, what did Jesus do? He healed a blind man. Some thought that anointing was unacceptable. And what did Jesus do? He anointed the man's eyes. So you can see why these guys are angry. They're upset. Their Sabbath rules are being broken. Back in John 5, they wanted to actually kill Jesus because he was breaking the Sabbath. Well, the second group of Pharisees thought, how can... This man who is a sinner, a sinner, so biting, do such signs. Sinners don't have the power to heal. God doesn't give sinners the power to do amazing things like this. His actions made it seem like he was from God, and the implications of Jesus being for God were far too great for them to handle. It was unbearable. Jesus created controversy. Jesus is still creating controversy. People divided over him. And Jesus strikingly said this in Luke 12, 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? And in a time like Christmas, you'd be prone to say, Yeah, peace on earth. This is what Jesus said. No, I tell you, but rather division. I came to divide people. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Absolutely, praise the Lord, he did, or I'd be gone. But he also came for schism. The truth divides. There is no middle ground. You're on one side or the other. Now, why create controversy on the Sabbath? I thought Jesus was a nice guy, right? I didn't really think that because I don't think he was a nice guy. I think he was a truthful and a loving and kind guy. But why create unnecessary controversy on the Sabbath? It's almost like Jesus wanted to stir things up. Well, that's indeed what he was doing. 
This miracle served the divine purpose of God. Jesus showed his supremacy over the Sabbath. Jesus showed his supremacy over Judaism, his supremacy over the Pharisees, and his supremacy over congenital disability, and he revealed the glorious works of God. He triggered hostility that was active in accomplishing God's sovereign plan of redemption through the cross. From fury to murder to Christ's atonement for God's people. Can you see how even the aggression of John 9 is serving for the good of God's people? Now, oddly enough, they wanted to know what the man thought of Jesus. The experts wanting to know his opinion. And so in verses 17 through 19, they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Hey man, why don't you tell us your your opinion? It it was sarcastic because at this point they didn't believe that the man was born blind. And so his testimony, they're just digging it in. Why don't you tell us who healed your blindness? Well, the man responded, he is a prophet. And he answered that because prophets are sent from God to declare the truth, to do amazing things. Jesus must have been sent from God if he was going to heal a blind man. Verse 18 the Jews did not believe that he, had been born, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? Could you confirm something for us? The Pharisees believed neither the people's testimony about this healing nor the man's testimony. What makes their unbelief even more pig-headed, and I think it's fair to say pig-headed, was that Jesus had done other miracles. Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast in John 2. And it says that many people believed in him because of the public miracles he was doing at the feast. Very open. They knew he could do miracles. They couldn't argue with that. Now make the connection. They knew of Jesus' miracles, so their unbelief was driven by something other than evidence. They ask his parents. Maybe they would say, he's not our son. We don't even know this guy. And that would solve it all. That would explain it away. And end this charade. And they could indict Jesus. But what happened? Verse 20. His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Uh Uh-oh. Case closed. The miracle happened. Can't argue with it. Parents confirmed it. The evidence was conclusive at this point. Denial at this point would mean there's an agenda more important to the Pharisees than truth. His parents continued, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Do you see what they're doing here? They're deflecting back on the sun. They don't want to get mixed up in this mess. His parents didn't actually see the healing take place, only the effects of the healing, but their response was out of fear, as verse 22 says. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. If you stand with Jesus, you're getting booted from the synagogue. 
The Pharisees would run you out, and excommunication from the synagogue was extremely serious for a first century Jew. His parents were scared of that, so they weighed their words very carefully and deferred back to the son because they feared the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious elitists. Were the Pharisees satisfied with their testimony? Nope. They headed into round two with the man, verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born, who had been blind, and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. Can you see at this point that evidence is not the issue? Evidence is not the issue. No amount of evidence would have placated their infuriated discrimination of Jesus. Not even the resurrection. After they knew Jesus was alive, did they believe? They continued to fight it. So what did they do? They bullied the man. They accused Jesus. Now you have to understand at this point, the miracle was settled. That was settled. They believed it happened. After the parents' testimony, the Pharisees accepted the miracle, but rather than believing, they blitzed. With bite in their words, they said to the man, give glory to God, as in, don't you dare defend that man. We know him. He is a sinner. Don't you be siding with him. Giving glory to God for them translated into opposition to Jesus. Unbelief has a strong agenda. Can you see it in the passage? With such self-confidence, they said, we know that this man is a sinner. Emotion, their desire, formed their conclusion, not truth. Jesus was completely above reproach. What, What could you point at in his life that would mar his character? He was perfect. He was sinless. So their agenda was clear. Do what was necessary to stop Jesus. Verse 25, he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He didn't know much about Jesus, uh, but he knew he was healed. The politics at this point didn't matter. He could see, and that was awesome to him. It was mysterious, it was true, but it was awesome. And at this point, we're going to see how pathetic and nonsensical unbelief can be. I I mean, this is almost laughable. It's that kind of laughter that you're like, are you even kidding me? You know that kind of laugh that you're like, oh, are you right? And you start laughing at this. This This is just really bad. After all the interrogations, listen to what the Pharisees said next. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Are you kidding? That's like coming off the Hershey's chocolate tour and saying, hmm, I wonder how they make chocolate. It doesn't make any sense. This is insanity. How hard is it to understand he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see? This is stone-cold unbelief driven by agenda and not truth. They only wanted to hear something that condemned Jesus. Imagine how frustrating that must have been to the guy. The man must have just been like, oh my. Verse 27. I have told you already. What do you want me to say? 
You just want to sit here and keep going over these simple details that you should be getting? He said, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That's bold, that's sarcastic, and that's awesome. (laughs) Now, when I say that the gospel will always have opposition, you need to understand how that applies to you. If you follow Jesus, you will have opposition. We don't follow Jesus because he makes us popular or powerful or prestigious. We follow Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. We follow Jesus because he opened our blind eyes to the truth. And at the end of the day, we will not win people to Christ because of evidence, as important as evidence is, but we will win people when the power of the gospel overcomes their sinful agenda and the Holy Spirit changes them to delight in the implications of the gospel. That submission to a good and sovereign king is infinitely desirable and beneficial for everyone. Our role is not to convince but to proclaim. God must first humble the heart for the truth to take hold. I think in all of our Christian testimonies, if you're a Christian this morning, you see how you were humbled before the gospel. How God just showed up and changed you to now see. He opened the blind eyes of your heart. Well, there is a price to pay for telling the truth, verse 28 and 29, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. It was getting ugly. They didn't like his sarcastic insinuation. They didn't like his tone. They revered Moses. Revered Moses, and they said it here, and they said it back in John 5 when Jesus discussed with them Moses. But were they really disciples of Moses if they rejected the one that Moses wrote about? God spoke through Moses, absolutely, but how much more did God speak through his only begotten son? And they admitted that they didn't know where Jesus came from. Now, right there, the man had him, the man won. They contradicted themselves. Take a quick look back at verse 16. Remember, they were confident about this. This man is not from God. They were confident in verse 24 too. We know that this man is a sinner. But now they're saying, we do not know where he comes from. Where's the confidence, guys? I thought you knew him. And they were right about that. They didn't know where Jesus came from, which makes their conclusions about Jesus even more suspect, even more suspicious. They were pretty anti-Jesus for men who knew nothing about the origin of Jesus. The Pharisees are are a very vivid illustration of what incoherent and aberrant unbelief really is. You see, unbelief traps you in a labyrinth of deceptive presuppositions and lies. Well, the man picked up. He was sharp. I don't think he was educated being a blind man for so long, but he was sharp. He could think. Truth. The man picked up on their self-contradiction and he, and he presented a very cogent and articulate argument. Listen to what he said. Verse 30. Why this is an amazing thing. 
Don't you love that tone? Aha! Here we are. You do not know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, that was a very good point. This man found it truly astonishing that the Pharisees could so strongly oppose and condemn Jesus while seeing his miraculous power and not knowing where he came from. It was all very ironic. The man said something intriguing. He said, God does not listen to sinners. That'll make you scratch your head. And so we asked the question, does God really ignore sinners? People who refuse to follow Jesus Christ, does God even listen to them? Well, the man may have been referring to verses like these. Job 35, verse 12 There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Psalm 18, verse 41, they cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Psalm 66, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, you understand what that means? If I loved sin and refused to give it up, the Lord would not have listened Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, I don't want that truth. Even his prayer is an abomination. Isaiah 1, 15, God said, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Micah 3, verse 4, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. The man's point was this. If Jesus was a sinner, actively working against God's will, God would not have given him extraordinary supernatural power over blindness. Jesus could not have been a sinner. Impossible, not even an option with power like that. The man added that God only listens to those who do his will and worship him. And that likely came from Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Or Proverbs 15, verse 29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Those who are close to God, those who have a, a heart for God, they, that they, they have a heart for truth and wanting to follow Him, God will listen to them because their righteousness is through His Son. The man was pointing to Jesus Christ's miraculous power as validation that He was indeed from God. Back in John 3, the Pharisee, nonetheless, Nicodemus, made a similar point. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is just a rehashing of that point. God was the only logical explanation for this miracle. For the healing of the blind man, if Jesus was not from God, if he was not blessed from God, he would not have been able to heal the man born blind. That's what he's saying in verse 33. You see, from the beginning of time, nobody 
It was completely unheard of. Nobody had healed a man born blind or a woman. It just didn't happen. Now, in 2 Kings 6, if you study that closely, Elisha prayed very oddly for men to be struck blind, and God struck them blind. And then he prayed that God would heal them, and God showed up and healed them. But they weren't born blind. And it says that the Lord opened their eyes, not Elisha. Nobody has done this. Jesus made history. Only God possesses the power to heal. And Jesus was unmistakably exercising that divine power. The man had just dismantled the Pharisees' arguments against Jesus and put forth this very compelling case for the person and work of Jesus Christ. This man was not only using impeccable reasoning, but he was contending from personal experience, from a man who had been healed. You might listen to a guy like that. Well, a small aside, you'll never truly contend for the gospel until you have deeply and personally been changed by the gospel. The Pharisees became like angry cornered rats flashing their teeth and hissing. Verse 34, they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. They were completely undone. They had nothing else to say. They couldn't bear being schooled by this common man, so they struck at him. Well, if you go back to the question the disciples asked Jesus in verse 2, you'll understand how biting their comment really was, how absolutely insulting they were to this man. This is what unbelief does when it is pressed hard enough, far enough with the truth that it fights It comes back strong. Look at any movement or agenda or group that oppose the gospel and you will regularly see anger within that movement or group or agenda, bitterness and ridicule and sometimes, actually, oftentimes violence against the truth. We see it all throughout history. The cross illustrates where this kind of disdain ends. The Pharisees tossed the man out of the synagogue, an act of contempt. They did to the man what his parents feared would happen to them in verse 22. You see, synagogues were very important. They were religious centers where Jews were taught the scriptures, the truth of God's word. Philo, the Jewish philosopher from the time of Jesus, called synagogues houses of instruction. That was biblical instruction. Together, Jews sang psalms and hymns. They prayed. They read the Old Testament scriptures. They explained the scriptures and received a blessing. And the Pharisees cut this man off from that. It was a severe act of aggression. They wanted him to suffer. It may have been a temporary expulsion or a permanent expulsion. We're not sure. But either way, it was spiteful and it was reactionary. John 9 is a drama. It's an interesting drama composed of spectacular and beautiful healing mixed with fierce and imperceptive opposition. John really serves us here by by writing a book, a narrative which explores the supremacy of Jesus with his divine power and the escalating antagonism that eventually got him killed. It's tragic and beautiful all at the same time. Now, I think it's helpful to see in this passage that Jesus will always have strong opposition. And folks, it doesn't have to do with evidence. Um, It doesn't mean that Jesus lacks credibility or rationality, as some would have you believe, but because people don't like the implications Jesus has on their lives. 
people ultimately want to be free of his moral constraints. Whether he's God or not doesn't matter. They just don't want him. Unbelief is true blindness driven by a suppression of the truth. It's it's also helpful to see that there is a great personal cost in believing the gospel and following Jesus, but we have to know, we have to believe that Jesus is worth it. What we give up for Christ, what we suffer for his sake, pales in comparison with the glory of the God-man who opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus may not have healed your body in some spectacular way. You might have something that's just hanging on that you'd like to get rid of and God hasn't taken it from you yet. But can't you say that a greater miracle has been done for you, that Jesus has opened the blind eyes of your heart to see the glory of God shining through his only son, Jesus Christ? Miracle of miracles that God actually changes the human heart to behold his glory. If Jesus was simply a man, if he's just a good teacher, if he's just some moral guy with feathery hair to follow along, to drive in some VW van and smoke funny things, I don't know, and follow him, he could do nothing for you. He's absolutely powerless. But if Jesus is from God, and Jesus is God, and and he backs it up, then he can far exceed all your expectations, all of your pleasures. Anything that your mind could conceive, Jesus is better. Don't turn a blind eye to the truth of Christ to justify and indulge temporary, meaningless pleasures. Instead, embrace the truth to receive all the glorious implications of the gospel. They're good. They're infinitely good. Jesus is king. He's on his throne. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my, what an interesting passage How biting and sarcastic and hateful and spiteful unbelief can be. And we see that in the lives of the Pharisees. And you know what, Jesus? That's how we were before you shined the light of the gospel in our heart and we saw your glory through your Son. And so, God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who's not taking Jesus very seriously, that they would look to the God-man who healed a blind man's eyes. And that they would be so struck by that, so enamored by that, so enthralled, so amazed, so astonished that they would run to the cross, lay down their agenda, lay down their sin, and receive all the glorious implications of the gospel. That we have a king, a glorious, righteous king, who came and purchased us back from the slavery to sin. That by faith, by grace, through faith, we can know the eternal God. We can know why we were made, which is to glorify you, God, by enjoying you forever. And so, God, may your preached word and the reading of your word make an impact on your people. Draw them close to you that they may come and behold the wondrous mystery of Jesus Christ. In his sovereign name we pray. Amen.